Meet Amelia. She's 39 and dealing with heavy periods for the last few years. She's also getting headaches around her cycle, feeling bloated, PMSy, and has uncomfortable breast tenderness. She didn't worry about this at first, but after a while, it started to really affect her life. She would plan her vacations and events around her cycle and try not to schedule anything important when she knew her period was due. She was constantly in the bathroom changing her pad or tampon and actually developed low iron from losing all this blood. She was so tired. The only answer she got from her GYN and two others that she saw was going on the birth control pill. The thing is that she was on the pill for years when she was younger, and then she got a blood clot a few years ago after taking a long flight from New York to Australia, and because of that, she was cautioned about being on the pill. I knew the pill was not the only answer here, and getting to the root of why her cycles were so symptomatic is how we were going to solve this case. Stay tuned for the interview, and then, as always, my summary and explanation of what was going on and what I did for Amelia, and what you can do if you have similar symptoms after the interview. Every year, thousands of people are told there's no explanation for their health concerns and no way to fix them. They feel frustrated, undermined. And lost. I know because that was me before I figured out the actual causes and reclaimed my health. Now I help others do the same. I'm Ina Toppler, and this is Health Mystery Solved. We just heard about Amelia. She was so fed up with her heavy periods and her recently erratic cycle. And joining me on the show today, all the way from London, to talk more about Amelia's case is Dr. Anu Arasu. She's the founder of London Bioidentical Hormones Clinic, and was also one of the first doctors in the UK to train in functional medicine. Dr. Anu, I'm so excited to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. And when we think about a menstrual cycle, most of us think of it coming every 28 days or so, you know, once a month. However, We don't often think about what happens hormonally during that time and how many moving parts there actually are. Now, can you tell us a little bit more about the female hormones and what typically happens during our menstrual cycle? Yes, of course. So generally, the first day of our period, both our hormones will actually be low. Our estrogen and progesterone will be low, and actually, as we finish the period from about day seven onwards, the estrogen begins to rise, and. What will next happen? Ideally, in an ideal world, you know, when we're not stressed and we're not having all the jargon from outside, we would get a nice LH surge. This is the luteinizing hormone surge, and this triggers ovulation. At the peak of ovulation, our estrogen is the highest, and the process of ovulation produces a corpus luteum. And when that breaks down, that releases progesterone. So then, for the second half of the cycle, we should be entering a state where the progesterone is high.、Um, and typically, if we were to do a test around day twenty-one, would see a progesterone level of, of around thirty.、Um, so ideally, in the second half of the cycle, you should be having plentiful progesterone. And then, just before、uh, your next period, the hormones drop, and you get a bleed. Um, because if we want to imagine it, the estrogen builds up the lining of the womb, and the progesterone sheds it. So that that's what should be happening. Thank you for explaining that. And there's a lot of moving parts there, and I think people just don't often think about it. So that's a great way to see it. So when someone experiences heavy cycles, first of all, how common is it to experience heavy cycles? How often do you see that in your practice? 
I mean, I see it a fair amount in my practice. Of course, I'm a little bit biased. I think one of the tricky things for women to know is what is normal. I think so many women, in a sense, you know, are left out in the cold, not really knowing if what they're experiencing is normal or not. And I would say that the way to define it, is it affecting your life? Is it affecting your quality of life? Is it stopping you doing the things that you want to do? Is it impacting your ability to work? Is it impacting your ability to socialize? Um, Because normal is a huge spectrum. I mean, everyone's journey is very different. And, And I would say that, you know, we can only compare ourselves to ourselves, right? So we can only really see if... You know, how are we in our 30s or 40s versus how we were in our 20s? Perhaps it's always been a nightmare. And in which case, if, if that is true, then we respect that, that is true. It is, it is a problem. If it's affecting your life, it is a problem. And I think that's key to say because we know that statistically things like endometriosis can take eight years to get diagnosed. You know, women often get missed because they put up with it. They put up with it. They think, okay, it's, you know, I'm having a, lots of pain and it's very heavy, but maybe this is normal. So so my answer to that question would be, if it's affecting your quality of life, it's worth seeking help. And especially, it sounds like from what you're saying, that if it wasn't always heavy, but all of a sudden, let's say over the past year or two, people are starting to see that it's become heavier, that's probably an indication that something could be going on. Absolutely. Yes. Comparing yourself to how you were, for example, perhaps in your 20s when, when cycles tend to be straightforward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, what are some causes of heavy cycles? Of course, every person is different, but just so that our listeners are aware of some of the potential causes that it could be. Yeah. So I've mentioned one, which is uh, uh, endometriosis. That's kind of jumping in right at the, the deep end. Um, you know, th- th- that could cause heavy periods. There, there can be many causes. There can be pathology such as endometriosis or fibroids. Um, it could be the case that if somebody's not having regular bleeds, say if they've gone two, three months without a bleed, by the time they have a bleed, it could be more heavy. Um, so for example, some women who suffer from PCOS, they're not having regular bleeds, they have lots of estrogen going around. So maybe perhaps if they have a period every two, three months, by the time it comes, it is very heavy. So, so these are a few of the causes. Yeah, I, I mean, there, there will be many more. So some, some women are just naturally more prone to heavy periods. So things like pelvic ultrasounds can distinguish if there is a new onset pel- pelvic pathology or actually if there's nothing going on, but it is just that person's predisposition. That makes sense. So I just wanted to go back for a second. When you mentioned PCOS, uh, we actually have an episode. It's uh, episode one. Uh, So for those who want to learn more about that, definitely check out that episode. But what you're saying is really important there that if someone isn't cycling regularly and you're building up more of a lining, it would kind of make sense if you're bleeding every few months that it's going to be heavier. So as much as, of course, there's still an underlying reason that you'd want to address why the PCOS is there, the heavy bleeding, you know, is really kind of more normal based on that. Now, what about, you mentioned endometriosis and fibroids. So, and for those that may not be familiar, can you tell us a little bit more about what is endometriosis and what are fibroids and how they can contribute to heavier bleeding? Yes, essentially endometriosis can be uh, wound tissue even outside of the womb. And it typically causes pelvic pain. So it typically causes dysmenorrhea, you know, pain as well as possibly heavy, heavier periods. And it can be quite hard to diagnose because... 
we may not see it, first of all, on the standard ultrasound scan. Um, I mean, the gold standard diagnosis uh, would be actually, you know, if someone goes in at laparoscopy and they see um, endometriosis tissue there. And, and we believe the pathology is due to, well, driven by hormones and inflammation. So, so this is endometriosis. With fibroids, fibroids are essentially benign growths uh, that are found in the, in the womb, in the uterus. Um, they're commoner in some ethnicities. If you have fibroids, uh, often, you know, maybe they sit there and they may not cause a problem. Maybe if they're small, they, they can just be seen incidentally. They may not be causing a problem. If they get larger, they could be causing heavier bleeding or if they're really large, even pressure symptoms. So, so these are the things that one tends to be aware of. Mm-hmm. Great. Now, you mentioned that estrogen is what causes your lining to build up. So if someone is having regular or somewhat regular menstrual cycles where it is about once a month and it's heavy, could something like having higher estrogen levels or estrogen dominance be responsible for it? Yeah, exactly. Exactly that that type of picture. So, um, you know, what we're really looking at is also the estrogen to progesterone ratio, the ratio between the two hormones. And um, so, you know, even if someone is having perfectly regular cycles, they've got no pathology going on, no fibroids, no, no endometriosis. Yes, they could still have something like a hormone imbalance that would be causing heavier periods. Now, if we're looking to test estrogen and progesterone, what are some of the best ways to do it? Because there's so many different tests out there. Of course, there's blood work, but these days now there's saliva tests and finger prick tests and urine tests. What do you like and how? what's the difference between all of those tests? Sure, it's a great question. Look, I think the main ones that we should talk about would probably be urine and blood tests. So something like the urine test, the Dutch test is a fantastic test because you get to see estrogen, progesterone, you also get to see how they are metabolized. To to see the way the hormones are metabolized, i.e. how somebody clears out their estrogen, which pathway it goes down, you can only really do that on a urine test. However, what the urine tests do not have is the follicle-stimulating hormone. So if you want to know if somebody's perimenopausal, you're going to need to do that on a blood test. Um, So blood tests can be very useful. Yes, they have a snapshot, but if the clinician's got experience, they, they know what they're doing, it's very, very helpful. I tend to use saliva tests for a slightly different purpose, which is um, really if you need to see what's going on with somebody every day of the month. Now, clearly, they're not going to be able to do a blood test every day of the month or even six days of, of the month. Um, and even the urine tests are quite laborious, but the saliva tests are great for establishing a pattern. So for example, if somebody has migraines, um, you know, a saliva test can be a great way to to kind of correlate their symptom diary with, with what's going on hormonally. However, if you were replacing hormones, saliva tests can, on hormone replacement, become, um, the levels can look uh, artificially high for quite a long time. So I think for monitoring on hormones, saliva tests certainly have limitations. Um, whereas Serum levels, especially for keeping the timing of the test are uh, the same, are, are very useful. Generally, I would say serum and urine are the key ones. That's great. And just for everyone listening, in case they're not familiar, a saliva test is a way where you can basically collect your saliva throughout your cycle. 
And the lab can measure your estrogen progesterone levels throughout the whole month. So as Dr. Anna was saying, if you have headaches or if you have certain symptoms, let's say something always happens in the third week of your cycle, then you can actually see if there are hormonal fluctuations that are happening then and see how they differ from, let's say, week one, two, or four of your cycle. And then with urine tests, Dr. Anna is talking about tests called the Dutch test. And it's really wonderful you guys have that in the UK. We have it here in the US. It's available worldwide. And that looks at the urinary metabolites of the hormones and I like that you were mentioning the estrogen metabolism because what happens is that we all produce estrogen, but we need to then metabolize and excrete that estrogen properly. And in some situations, if that's not happening, that could be one way that we can become estrogen dominant, not because we're producing too much, but, you know, because we're not excreting or metabolizing it properly. So that's a really good test for that. And then of course, the serum would be a blood test where we can do it on a specific day. Now, Dr. Anu, I wanted to ask you, you mentioned that Estrogen and progesterone are best done at their peak, which is around day 21 or seven days post-ovulation. What about if you're looking at LH or say FSH? Can they be done at the same time or should they be done at a different part of the cycle? It depends what question you're asking. I think the key thing is just to, to, to make sure you're really documenting when the person's last period was and interpreting them correctly. Because, of course, people have, do FSH and LH for different reasons. You know, Some people are looking at those levels for IVF. Some people are looking at the LH to FSH ratio for things like polycystic ovarian syndrome. Some people are looking at the FSH to work out if somebody is slipping into perimenopause. So I think it depends on the clinical question. But the key thing is, say if you did a day 21 test and, and you get an FSH back and it's it's raised. It's raised for the, for the luteal phase. That that that's a sign that you know, the brain is essentially working harder to kick those ovaries. Something's something shifting there. So, so for me, it's all about putting it into clinical context. Now, if we're looking for estrogen dominance, and this is actually something that Amelia was experiencing as I tested her and kind of looked more in depth into what was going on. How would you interpret the test that way? If you were looking, say, at a serum test, do you like a specific ratio of estrogen to progesterone or are you looking at levels individually? Huh, that's It's a good question. I think you get a feel for it the more you do. People talk about a 10 to 1 ratio, but um, in practice, I think you get a feel for I mean, ideally, if you have um, any results from that, that, that person before as well that you can compare with, uh, I, I think if they're within the normal range, but um, but at the upper end, it really does depend on, on where the progesterone is. But I think you get a feel for that the more you do. Mm-hmm. And are you looking at uh, estradiol or total estrogens or any other markers when you're looking at estrogen? I mean, the ideal thing to do is, is to do the Dutch and to actually look at all of the potent estrogens, because what you really want to be doing is looking at the estriol and then the total potent estrogen, so the estrone and the estradiol. These are the most powerful ones. And so if somebody has higher total potent estrogens, then they could be suffering from estrogen dominance. Yes. So I'd say that those are probably the key ones to look at. And now that that is the kind of information that you're getting on the Dutch, which is so beautiful. Um, And then, as you said, the metabolism. So if they're not clearing out their estrogen well, that might lead us on to another part, which is if we were to then go on to do a gut test, we may find abnormalities or anomalies in things like the beta-glucuronidase levels, which are also to do with estrogen clearance. Ah, so glad you're mentioning that. Can you tell us a little bit more about this? I love testing this enzyme, but tell us more about how that is involved in estrogen clearance. Yeah, well, essentially, um, now we know more about um, estrobilome, 
have you heard much about the estrobilome? No. The estrobilome, so this is within the gut microbiome. Uh, we now believe that there are a group of, uh, well, part of the microbiome, bacterial genes that are involved in production of estrogen. So some estrogen production can be driven by the gut. So the estrobilome and how estrogen is cleared out in the gut is all very relevant to the serum levels that we are seeing. This is all quite emerging. We don't know much about the estrobilome yet, but this is going to be a huge source of us better understanding estrogen dominance. So this is one to watch. Yeah, that's so interesting. That's so interesting. I mean, they're finding so many things with the microbiome and just the effects that it has on literally everything in our body. So that's really amazing about its effect on hormones. And um, of course, also with the beta-glucuronidase enzyme, that has to do with how your body is packaging or unpackaging that estrogen. So um, if you're producing more through the gut and on top of that, if there's gut dysbiosis and you're not excreting it properly because of that, it's like a double whammy and you can have more Absolutely. Exactly that. Yep. So what are some things that people can do to remedy the situation if they do in fact have estrogen dominance? And if that is the underlying factor that is creating their heavy menstrual cycles? Yeah. I mean, I would say the first thing is back to basics diet. You know, we really are what we eat. And I think what we know is that Dark green leafy vegetables, the cruciferous vegetables, are excellent at helping healthy estrogen clearance. They're excellent at supporting estrogen clearance. Interestingly, there's lots of literature that shows that vegetarian diets, uh, people tend to have lower estrogens. Now, I'm not suggesting that everyone go vegetarian. I'm just saying that, um, you know, make sure we're eating enough vegetables, i.e. half our plate for two meals is vegetables and, and, and really focus on the dark green cruciferous vegetables. So, so that is key. You know, having adequate fiber is important. It helps bind up estrogen. But bear in mind that constipation may cause recirculation of partially metabolized estrogen. So that's not going to help if you have estrogen dominance. So we, we definitely want to be having a diet with enough fiber that you're not constipated. Yeah, that's such a good point. And for everyone listening, when you are not going to the bathroom daily, and if you're not moving your bowels as well as you should, you will reabsorb the estrogen that's kind of waiting there to be excreted out. So that could be one reason. That's a great point. Yeah, I think, you know, we talk about plastics a bit nowadays. I mean, which can, uh, there, there are certain chemicals that can act as xenoestrogen. So maybe having an effect on the estrogen receptor that we're hearing more about. Um, so, you know, with our plastic food containers, especially if they're heated up, we have to be a little bit careful. Um, alcohol, I think, I, you know, people can often be a bit more sensitive to alcohol if they have estrogen dominance. And it, it does affect the gut microbiome. It does also affect the liver's ability to detoxify estrogen. Um, so just what we were saying before about the, the microbiome, number one, and then number two, the ability to clear out estrogen. You know, alcohol is not going to help with those two. Conversely, things that increase detoxification, like aerobic exercise, can be great. So, so that can be quite helpful in lowering estrogen levels. Now, I was going to ask you about hormonal support. I know that one of the things that you specialize is in bioidentical hormones. So if someone has estrogen dominance, and let's say they do have too much estrogen and don't have enough progesterone, when could they consider 
progesterone support and should they consider that? Yeah, so it can be very helpful. So again, once we've established what's, what, what is going on and, and possibly why, uh, we can begin to make a treatment plan. So the first thing might be cleaning up the diet, increasing aerobic exercise, um, the, trying to reduce stress. Um, actually, we'll talk a bit about stress and, and how it affects the other hormones. Um, the second thing is if something was going on in the gut, if, if the beta-glucuronidase was raised, then, then supplements, calcium deglucurate, can inhibit that. That can help um, estrogen to be packaged and eliminated from the body. Um, DIM, another supplement, the, the active compound in, in the dark green leafy vegetables can also help clear out estrogen. Um, but finally, you know, if somebody has low progesterone, giving them progesterone to, to balance their estrogen is an extremely effective way to do things. And I do see it as disease prevention. You know, I do, I do see it as preventing endometrial thickening, preventing problems like fibroids from potentially occurring. So, so, so that can have, have very much have a role. Um, and with the best will in the world, many people entering perimenopause, you know, even who have good lifestyles and don't have gut issues going on may just find their progesterone declining before their estrogen and may may need that so so it is useful and is that something that's safe because i know a lot of people ask the question about hormones and you know we hear of course with hormone replacement therapy that there are certain dangers that could come along with it can you talk us uh, tell us a little bit about the difference between synthetic hormones and bioidentical hormones and also how progesterone is different than estrogen in terms of supplementation yeah, I mean, uh, synthetic hormones are not identical structures to the body's own, as well as binding to the body's hormone receptor. They may bind to other receptors, other steroid receptors, and can therefore cause unwanted side effects, such as, for example, irritability, acne, you know, insomnia, which are kind of almost the opposite of what what the actual progesterone receptor may be doing in some circumstances. So, bioidentical progesterone, on the other hand, is identical in structure to the body's own. And so specific for the progesterone receptor. So th this is the key difference. Um, and it is the synthetic progestins that have been found to be the biggest problematic component in terms of increasing risk of breast cancer in HRT. So standard HRT that often contains synthetic progestins, it is that synthetic progestin component that we do not like. When it comes to estrogen, in the UK, our guidelines would say little or no risk little or no increased risk. And the reason why we say little increased risks, yes, you know, if you have long lifetime estrogen exposure is, is associated with an increased risk of breast cancer, um, lifetime estrogen exposure, that's everything from in utero to, you know, taking the pill to any fertility treatments to um, the levels we may have from obesity um, to all sorts of things. So with estrogen, sure, one has to be thinking a bit about the amounts of the lifetime exposure. So, so that's how I, I would describe them as, well, the differences between uh, synthetic and bioidenticals and sort of estrogen versus progesterone, the issues with each. Yeah. And it's, it's very good to know and just have that reassurance that bioidentical progesterone is very different than the synthetic progestins. And it's those synthetic progestins, like you're saying, that cause so many potential issues 
bioidentical progesterone is going to be very different. So it doesn't cause that. You know, and I think with bioidentical estrogen, you're making a very good point there too. And what I want people listening to know is that, yes, bioidentical estrogen is going to be safer in the sense because it's identical to your body than synthetic estrogen. But we still want to look at, like Dr. Anna was saying, your total life exposure. So if you are overweight, we know that adipose tissue is going to store, you know, create more estrogen. So then there's more exposure. If you eat from plastic containers, if you've been on the birth control pill for years before, you know, and on top of that, if you have liver detoxification issues or metabolism excretion issues, then you're going to have more of an exposure. And so that's where the risk may increase. And that's where you really want to work with someone that understands that and supports it. And I think, you know, each one has many benefits as well. So it's, you know, in fact, cardiovascular disease is the biggest killer in women, bigger than any type of, uh, you know, bigger than breast cancer. So I think, you know, each one does have many benefits. So, but it's about doing it judiciously and, and about, um, about looking at all these other factors. That, 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 is, that is the key. You've got to look at the patient in front of you and what is right for them. Mm-hmm. Yes, because we are all very different. So it is important to customize as much as possible. Well, Dr. Anu, thank you so much for all of this information. I so appreciate you being here and sharing all of this with us. Pleasure. Estrogen dominance can be the underlying issue of many menstrual cycle irregularities, and it was for Amelia. I'll tell you what we did for Amelia and how you can see if estrogen dominance may be part of your issue in just a second. But first, if you want to contact or find out more about my guest, Dr. Anu Arasu, please visit healthmysterysolved.com and go to episode number 30. There you'll see all the detailed show notes and all of the resources that she and I discuss on the show. Now, in Amelia's case, estrogen dominance was definitely her issue. We tested her through a test I really like called the Dutch test. This is a urine test, which looks at all the hormones, the hormone metabolism markers, as well as cortisol, our stress hormone throughout the day. I performed the test on day 21 of her cycle. She has a 28-day cycle. Now, if you guys are running tests for hormones, day 19 to 23, or around seven days after you ovulate, is the best time to get the most accurate reading of what's going on. Amelia's results showed that she had elevated estrone and estradiol, which are the estrogens, and her progesterone was low. On top of that, she had issues with her estrogen metabolism, and her levels of 4-hydroxyestrogen was almost 20%. Let me explain this for a minute. Once your body makes estrogens, it has to metabolize them and excrete them out of the body, or else they would get reabsorbed back in. Your body metabolizes estradiol, estrone, and estriol, which are the three estrogens, through various detox enzymes into the 2, 4, and 16-hydroxyestrogen. I look at these as the good, the bad, and the ugly. The 2-hydroxy is the good estrogen. The 16-hydroxy is what I call the bad, and the 4-hydroxy is what I call the ugly. This is the one that can cause oxidation and DNA damage if it's elevated. Ideally, we want to see the 4-hydroxy at 10% or lower of the total metabolites, and Amelia's was at a whopping 20%. Amelia was on the birth control pill for many years when she was younger, which is a potential contributor to estrogen dominance. And as I explored her history, she was quite constipated for most of her life, which is actually another factor that can cause estrogen to build up and reabsorb because it's not coming out. So this was all making a ton of sense. 
We also ran a GI map stool test, which is a DNA stool test where I found some dysbiosis, which is overgrowth of bacteria and yeast. And as I was suspecting, her beta-glucuronidase enzyme was elevated. This enzyme can elevate when there's dysbiosis in the gut. And in a nutshell, this enzyme prevents estrogen from being properly excreted. Now that we knew what was happening and why, we could address this properly. We first worked on motility with calcium magnesium citrate and cleaned out the bad bugs with an antimicrobial protocol of GI microbex and FC cyto, which are synergistic herbs that have antimicrobial characteristics to them. And we supported her digestion with a supplement called betaine HCL, which helps to boost stomach acid because her tests showed she didn't have enough stomach acid and the food was not digesting as well as it should. After a few weeks on this protocol, her bowel started moving much better. I then gave Amelia calcium deglucurate, a supplement that helps to lower the beta-glucuronidase enzyme, which then helps to move estrogen out. And we used DIM, which is diindomethane, in a liquid form. We used four pumps throughout the day to help shift the conversion of the estrogen away from the 4-hydroxy and more towards the 2 and the 16-hydroxy. I also started her on a good quality Omega. One of my favorites, which I know I talk a lot about on the show, is the Omega Avail Ultra by Designs for Health. And I also put her on GLA, which is gamma-lilinelic acid. This is the active ingredient in evening primrose oil. But the GLA is a bit stronger. And one gel cap of that is like taking five to eight of the evening primrose oil pills. So it's a lot easier and cheaper this way. While progesterone can be helpful in some cases... Amelia did excellent with just these changes because what we did was instead of boosting and giving her progesterone, we worked on the higher estrogen that she had. We did things to naturally lower it and to help her body excrete it. And then in just two cycles, she noticed a lower flow, less clotting, and the tender and swollen breasts she was getting were completely gone. She was super excited. Estrogen dominance is an issue that affects so many women. Symptoms of estrogen dominance include things like heavy periods, cramping, tender breasts, weight gain around the menstrual cycle, bloating, and also not a lot of sweating during workouts. Now, sweating less may seem like a good thing. I get it. But it's a sign that something can be off with estrogen if you sweat much less than what the average person is during a workout. If you are experiencing these symptoms, you may also have estrogen dominance. But as you can see... There's lots of natural things that can be done to help balance and support this. If Amelia sounds like someone you know, please share this episode with them and make sure you subscribe to this podcast because the next health mystery I uncover could be one you or someone you love is dealing with right now. And if you guys are enjoying the show, I would so appreciate it if you can go onto iTunes and write a few words for a review and rate the podcast. These reviews really help spread the word so the podcast is shown to more people so they too can see that the answers are out there and that they're not alone in their health struggles. When it comes to solving your health issues, don't give up. The answers are out there and there is hope. I'm Ina Toppler. Thank you so much for listening and see you next week on Health Mystery Solved. All information, content, and material on this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified physician or healthcare provider.